Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to you who are familiar. Good morning to you who maybe uh, we're still getting to know. We're glad that everyone who is here today to share in the most important thing that we could possibly do in our lives. And the most important thing that we could possibly do is to recognize the creator who brought us here, who designed us, who formed us, who gave us hearts that have eternity in them, that we should gather together to learn more about him, to learn more about his word, to study and to sing praise and to remember the things that we are alive for. What a wonderful day it is. And we have a beautiful day outside today. Uh, spring is here. Life is come. And uh, I'm having a good day. And I don't know about you, but it's good to be here. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Now, there's several here who maybe weren't here as we've been doing this study. So I'll try to kind of fill you in as we go without um, going through the whole Hebrew study again. But basically what we're studying is a book written by, uh, this is unusual in the Bible, but it's an unknown author. We're not told who wrote this, but we do know it comes from God. God inspired the Holy Scriptures to be written so that we could know his plan, so that we could know his will for us in, in our lives. And so we know it came at least from God. God designed the Bible and had it written through the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and we know it was written, who it was written to. It was written to the Jews at the time uh, who were transitioning from this Old Testament to the New Testament. And you're like, what in the world is that? If you don't know, if you're not familiar about this much of your Bible, the front half or front, uh, way more than half of your Bible is the Old Covenant. That's where the Jews were under. That's what the Old Testament and the sacrificial system was about before Jesus came. And this kind of division between the two is where Jesus set up the new covenant, what we live under today. If you've seen movies, it's kind of like the setup and the plot development and then the rising action, the climax of the whole story. And this is kind of where we're studying in this climax where Jesus has come to fulfill the setup that is the foundation of the world, the old covenant that tells us God's will and his plan. This is what we're living under today, this new covenant. And this letter we're studying is just a piece of that. But the, the unique part about this letter is it's the transition point between the two. Because there were people who, were, who had to make the switch. Now, the thing I think we're trying to relate to, maybe the biggest with the Jews, is they had a lot of big changes to undergo in their religious perspective, in their life perspective. And maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you didn't grow up with this stuff. Maybe this isn't what you came from. You can relate to the Jews, the Hebrews who are receiving this letter. Because they have to learn about this Messiah and accept this Messiah who's come to save them from their sins. Now, as we'll learn, hopefully they were waiting for it, and they should have been waiting for it. But uh, such is the case today, I guess. We're not all waiting for Jesus today. Um, but that's the goal. That's the goal is to always be waiting for God's next step in his plan, both in our personal lives and for the life and uh, for the greater plan of God's will. So we're reading in Hebrews chapter 9 up into this point, and the goal of the Hebrew writers to get these Jews to realize how great and how much divine Jesus is. So we've talked about how in, in the early chapters, Jesus is greater than the, the prophets, he's greater than angels, he's greater than everything before in the Old Testament, so that they should listen to him. And now we're going to talk in this, uh, in this chapter about the tabernacle. And from the last study, we talked about how uh, in the Old Testament, there were types of sacrifices that were made. There was a, uh, an atonement offering. There was the, the, uh, the bread offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. So the types of 
offerings and sacrifices to God in the Old Testament we went over before. And those themes will carry through. And just to kind of bring us up to speed, in Hebrews chapter 8, the last couple verses before chapter 9 that we'll read today, say this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this new law that God's going to bring is going to be something that changes us from the inside out. If, you, uh, if you've seen a lot of religious activities, sometimes it can seem very ritualistic. The goal for God's people in this new covenant is to take it beyond the ritual, to take it inward, to change us that way. Verse 11, he said, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for everyone shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, from the poor man to the rich man, from the, from the lowly man to the, to the ruler, everyone will know. For I will be merciful to the unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. He is going to forgive us in this new covenant. Verse 13, the last verse of that chapter, in that he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. So now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that old covenant that we talked about, if if the word covenant is, is strange and unfamiliar, just think the word will. Someone who leaves behind a plan and a system that is their will. And so this old law, he said, is obsolete. It's now going away and it's ready to vanish away and replaced by the new law. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Okay, So the sanctuary he's talking about is going to be related to the physical presence that they would set up for the religious people in Israel. Okay, it might sound like a a lot of terminology and things like that. Uh, For the people who are members here, we've been studying about this. We've studied several times, so I hope not to belabor it too much because uh, I think we've gotten good practice in this area and study recently. But this, uh, this earthly sanctuary, he's talking about the religious setup that they used to have. And uh, this is what was called the tabernacle. So this place was set apart. So if you're thinking themes is is a good thing to think for for us New Testament Christians. What are the themes? God had a place that was set apart. There was a special place for God in the Old Testament. It was first surrounded by uh, specific dimensions of this, these, uh, this uh, veil, this tabernacle was set up with an outer area in which was the altar of sacrifice where we, they would do those burnt offerings. And then they would have a washing area. And then this is where it got even closer and closer to the presence of God. You have this first area is called the holy place. And then right after that, the closest place to the presence of God for the Israelites was called this most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant that we're going to talk about today, that's where it was. And that's where they would go to the presence of God. So it was set apart. It was, it was very specific and very designed to be intentional with how they approached God. He wasn't someone who they would just look up into the sky during that time and just go, I know you're here somewhere. No. There was a specific presence, and they could pray to him and things like that. But anyway, we'll get there. So this is what he's going to be talking about with this tabernacle, this earthly sanctuary. Verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand. 
So this lampstand was the candlesticks, and it was what provided light for the holy place. You know, they didn't have uh, they didn't have light fixtures in there, and so that candlestick was the plate was the thing that provided that provided the light. It had the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So in this holy place, so we are talking about this area right here. There are three main things. There's a candlestick, there's a table of showbread, and there's an altar of incense. Three things. Those three things had a special representation. And to keep it, the beauty of God's word is it's not just some religious mumbo jumbo. It's the showbread was, it had 12 loaves of bread on it. And those were to represent the 12 families or the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was a symbol of God's fellowship with his people. Then you have the altar of incense. That was representation of the prayers of the people going before God. And so as they would light that incense, it would float through the curtains and into the room and even into the presence of God. So you have something that represents prayer. We do that today. Very simple. It's a prayer. We have fellowship with God. And the light that God provides to us represented in the candlestick. And it even looks like a tree. I think is, the idea is to symbolize the tree of life that God brings to us. Okay. So we have the table, the showbread. So this is the sanctuary. This is the setup of the earthly sanctuary in the Old Testament. We don't have this anymore. There's another picture of it. Verse 3, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. So there's a first veil to enter the holy place, and just kind of like a curtain separating it. And then the second veil is what goes to the holiest of all, where God's presence was. Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. So as we've been reading through the Old Testament, all those did, all, everything was so, so specific and so precious. They had precious stones and precious materials to cover even the wood of these boxes. Overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Now the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence with the people. As you read through the Old Testament... What happens with the ark really determines what's happening with God's people. When the ark is taken away from God's people and it's not in their hands, they're, they're separate, they're losing battles. But when the ark comes with them, it's God's presence is strengthening them and they win. and, they, and they, It's a symbol. It's, it's all themes that are carried even into uh, what we can understand today. The presence of God in this ark of the covenant. So that was overlaid on all sides with gold. In which were the golden pot. So inside there's a golden pot, pot that had the manna. It had Aaron's rod that budded, and it had the tablets of the covenants. Okay, so with three things inside of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. The first thing was the manna. And in case you're not familiar with that, in the Old Testament, God did some incredible things. They're hard to fathom, but when his people needed food out in the middle of the desert, he brought down food from the skies, and it, it was like dew on the ground in the morning. And they called that manna. And what's interesting is that they kept some manna in this golden pot as a memorial uh, and as a symbol. But we to we're told in the Old Testament that if they kept it for more than a day, or if they kept too much, it would grow worms and it would stink and rot immediately. Because God wanted them to have manna every day. And he would, God wanted them to come to him for the food and from the bread from heaven. But what's interesting is God somehow preserved that because that wasn't a bucket full of worms. It was, it was manna as symbol so that they would remember. 
It had Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, in the Old Testament, God's people started to go up against Aaron and say, Hey, why, why are you getting all the power? Why are you getting all the authority? What's, what's wrong with us? Why can't we have some power? And Aaron was like, Guys, this is not me. This is not my deal. God set me up. I'm not the one choosing it. I'm just serving in the way God has asked me to. And the way that, the way that they settled this is Aaron, God told, told Aaron to do this. And so they all took their staffs up and they set them in, in one area together. And uh, Aaron's rod was set apart to show that he was the leader. And that his rod, it grew, it, it blossomed out of this stick. This dead, chopped off stick started to grow and blossom buds. And I believe it said it even had almonds come off of it. So it's fascinating, the, the detail and the, the confirmation of God's will and his plan and his leaders in the Old Testament. And the tablets of the covenant. So when this was originally written, this whole Old Testament, it was written on tablets of stone. And so those stone tablets were the third thing that were inside of there. Now really, when you think about these things, these are all things that should symbolize and carry a weight for them that was negative. It reminded them a lot of their failures. If you think about manna, well, it reminded them that God was there to provide for them. But how much they failed and complained against God to get that manna. And how much they complained about it when they got that manna. They wanted quail. They wanted something else. It was, a, it was a reminder of their own failure. Aaron's rod that budded. That, that was a reminder of them going against God's plan and God's leadership. And then the covenant. There was a time where those tablets were split. Moses got so angry, he split them. He, he broke them. And that was a covenant that they, that they could not keep perfectly. But it was in this uh, it was in this covenant that was God's presence and God's will was surrounding it. Verse 5, and above it, so above this covenant, on top, kind of like a lid, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, so these cherubim were like those, those winged creatures, those angels. These are the same uh, Creatures that were described in the, in the uh, exit of the garden in Genesis. When, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God placed cherubim there to guard it. And there was a flaming sword twirling around to keep them out. So it's fascinating now that, that God is trying to make a way for his people to come back to him and to be reconciled and to be taken to him. That there are cherubim there showing where God's presence is in the holiest of all. Verse 6, now when these things have been thus prepared, so all of these symbols in the tabernacle, when these things have been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Okay, so in their system, you had the Levitical priesthood. So that was a family of Levi who were the priests. One man was the, was the high priest, but they had these priests who would go through and do these services. So the services they did, they would come put new bread, they would put fresh bread every day, on that table, and they would, uh, they would light incense and, and offer prayers, and they would add oil to the lamps to keep it running, because the oil was the fuel in the lamp uh, that was keeping that lit. That light was supposed to never go out in the tabernacle. So they were every single day going in and performing these, these little uh, services. Verse 7, but into the second part, so the most holy place, the high priest went alone once a year, just the high priest, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. 
So this holy place, this most holy place, only the high priest went in. And he went in once a year, twice on that day. He went in, the two reasons it says here, he had to go in first and offer atonement for himself. Then he went in afterward a second time to offer atonement for the people of Israel. And he would take blood in there and sprinkle it on the, the mercy seat. This place where the cherubim and the lid are, this is called the mercy seat. Now think about the presence of God. God, I, was heard, I read it described, God looking down, he might see those articles in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, the symbols of their failure and their inability to keep the old law and their continual rebellion. But when that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, God had mercy and he saw the blood of the sacrifice instead of just seeing those symbols of their failure. And that was called Atonement Day. One day a year was called Atonement Day where there was blood sprinkled there very, very intentionally on the mercy seat. It was not without blood. So that's kind of the theme we're going to get to of connecting it to Jesus and Jesus' blood is that there was even blood offered in the Old Testament on the mercy seat. And it's interesting here that it talks about it's offered for the sins committed in ignorance. When I was kind of starting to become more aware of things in, in our faith system and, and understanding the way God works, it fascinated me. I, I remember asking my dad, you know, how does God forgive us for sins that we don't even know we're doing? And if you think about it, I mean, that's probably the majority of our sins. And, and the, the more we, we grow older and the more we grow up, we realize our faults more and more. And we start to peel back the layers of our own selfishness, our own pride, our own um, wrongs in our hearts. There are so many layers of our individual wrong. How in the world does God forgive us for that? And even in the Old Testament, there was a way for them to have, to have those sins covered and to have those sins atoned for. It's beautiful that God understands where we're at. Let's be real. We all have deep issues on some level or another. And maybe we've gotten some progress in those. Maybe we haven't. But God is concerned with taking care of us that he even understands and takes care of the sins we commit in ignorance as long as we are trying to follow his plan. Okay, It's not like we can just be ignorance is bliss because we learn in the New Testament that, uh, that Paul was persecuting the church and, and, he, and going against Jesus ignorantly. So it's not like you can just live in ignorance, obviously. But God understands when his people are following him that we're not just going to be there right when you start. Maturation helps uh, overcome sin and it, it makes sin pop up less often. But we still have issues to overcome. And God understands us on that level from the, from the beginning until now. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Okay, so the fact that only one man could go in once a year to do this, it's showing us that there's not really a way in there yet. While this first tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle, the Old Testament, and those ways had not given them a way to really access the holiest of all. Just the fact that they had to do that once a year, it's like we're waiting on something, aren't we? Something else has to happen because this can't be it. And that's true. And on top of that, to kind of 
give a little more color to what would happen with this, the priest had bells on the bottom of his garments. And he had a rope tied around his foot as security. Because if that priest came in there and he wasn't ceremonial clean, ceremonially, ceremonially clean, he might be struck dead on the spot. So if he hits the floor, nobody else is going in there because only the high priest can go in there. So if someone else were to go in there and get him, they would die. And so they had a rope tied around his foot so that if he happened to be killed in there or for some reason died, they could pull him out. So as we started to understand the gravity of the old law and God's presence, that will help us to understand the new law and how great Jesus is to counteract the, uh, the sin problem that we have and how it separates us from God. God's presence was so great. He didn't want them to take it lightly. He had a way for them to be ceremonially clean and to the where they could come into his presence and his holiness and not be defiled. And this seems like a, a crazy reality. Why in the world would a good God just strike somebody dead who's coming to talk to him? There are realities that we don't fully comprehend because we don't fully live in a, in a way that is aware of them all the time. We don't talk to people who do the kinds of things that God can do on a daily basis. We talk to people who get tired and have to sleep every 16 hours like we do. We get tired. We have to interact with people who have failures and faults. We're not dealing on a daily basis face-to-face -face with a God who can literally raise people from the dead and who created the world. So when we try to understand him, it's helpful to understand that we're not dealing with someone who's like us. So that if he demands something of us and asks something of us, we should seriously respect it and take it for the gravity that it holds. And we'll talk about this more in a minute. Verse 9. These things we've talked about, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, Imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, that was a lot of maybe words that might be hard to understand. So it was symbolic. The old law were symbols. That word uh, in Greek is parabole. It's a parable of the things that would come. It's, it's not the real thing. The old, the old Testament was full of symbols. For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices that we've already talked about, those are offered, but they cannot make him who performed the service perfect. It doesn't make him completely complete. It makes him atoned for for a time. It makes him uh, clean for a time. But it doesn't make him perfect in regard to the conscience. And as we strive to serve God, we have to be aware of the fact that no kind of ritualistic thing we do by itself can make us clean in conscience. We can all come to worship today and do what are really, these are rituals. A ritual isn't necessarily uh, against God's will. It's just something that you do like on a regular basis as part of your routine of, of performing a task. We sing. We commune around the Lord's table. We pray. Those are our rituals. And so if we do those things and we expect that alone to make us pure and perfect and clean in our conscience, it's not going to be enough. That is what Jesus calls uh, only on the outside a whitewashed tomb. That's what the Jews were called in the New Testament by Jesus. 
So these things could not perfectly take care of the sin problem of man. They were only concerned with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. It's interesting about those various washings. Um, as a side note, this isn't really the point the writer's getting at, but if you look into some of those washings, it's fascinating that God knew so, God knew so much before any of our modern medicine did. Part of the washings that they would do and part of the, the cleansing process is if you were made unclean by, let's say, touching a, a dead body, you were considered ceremonially unclean. You couldn't come into the presence of God. So you had to be purified, and so they, have, they would have this water that you were purified with. Okay, ceremonially, that's kind of the picture. But practically speaking, the way they made that water of purification is they would take a burnt sacrifice, they would take its ashes, and they would run water through those ashes. And that was your cleansing water. And they would apply it with hyssop. Okay, ashes and hyssop are both uh, now known today to be... Uh, antibacterial and antiviral. That's, when you run water through ashes, it collects uh, the chemical lye, and lye is what many people in the early settlement days were using to make soap. It's a, it was a modern, or a, an ancient version of soap that really they were using, they might not have even known. In too much quantities, lye can be bad for you, and it can be damaging, but in the right quantity, it is like soap. God was having them be ceremonially cleansed with something they probably didn't even understand to be antiviral. And then it was applied with hyssop. Well, I'll show you a picture of hyssop in a minute. But it's just a plant that has uh, thymol in it, or thymol, however you pronounce it. And that is what we use in mouthwashes a lot of times today. On the leaves, there would grow a type of mold that produced penicillin. So there were all these things going into the process of the cleansing ceremony that Maybe it helped keep them healthy. I don't know. But at least it was scientifically way beyond what we could ever understand today. That can't be an accident. That can't be just have happened. God is behind even things like this in the Old Testament where man didn't know what was going on. God knew. The last verse said, These things were insufficient so they were, they were insufficient by themselves, but they are very important. And we learn from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I, it, it tells us there, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So all these things they were doing alone weren't going to cleanse them in conscience perfectly. And nothing we do today with our works alone can cleanse our consciences. But it is just our, our reasonable service. It is what we should logically do if, if our God is this great and this merciful to us. We should just reasonably respond by wanting to serve him with everything that we have. Verse 11. But, high, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. So, he's not the high priest according to the earthly tabernacle. He's got a high priesthood that's going way beyond that to the good things to come. Things that we as the church are just kind of participating in in hope of heaven that's coming. The good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. God's tabernacle, the heavenly places that we are going to, that we are heading for, 
That's what Jesus came to prepare. He came to prepare not some place that was 10 by 45 and 15 by 15 with a certain amount of elements. No, he came for a perfect and heavenly tabernacle that he wants us to join him in one day. These things are not made with men's hands like the earthly tabernacle was. The good things to come was even symbolized uh, in the, the lampstand. It was meant to look like the tree of life. And Jesus in the New Testament was crucified on a tree. He came bringing good things, even through his death and through his suffering. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Once for all, Jesus suffered and he saved us eternally. To redeem something is to pay for it. And he bought our eternal Salvation and our eternal redemption with his own blood. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So remember, he's writing this to people who are used to the fact that you could perform a sacrifice and become clean. So that they were so the point of the writer is saying is that if those bulls and goats who were sacrificed made them sanctified or set apart and purified to be able to be in God's presence for the purifying, it's all language that in the Old Testament's being clean before God. We don't want to be dirty before God. We want to be clean. Because we have to be clean to come into his presence. If all of that, those animals, made us pure, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice in every way, who through the eternal spirit, both his spirit that is eternal and is aware of what he was doing eternally, and the Holy Spirit who planned this and, and made this plan into, go into effect, he offered himself without spot. He was a perfect sacrifice. Like in the Old Testament, their animals had to be a, a great animal. It had to be the pick of the litter. It had to be the, the best of their flock. Without spots that made it an ugly animal. Jesus was without spot in his character, in his morality. How much more shall this Jesus cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Those dead works, I believe, are kind of twofold. Any kind of dead work, any kind of sinful act that you might do, or that I might do, that should, that should cleanse us. His blood will cleanse us from those dead works and the sinful lives that we've lived in the past. But I think specifically to the context, he's talking more here about the dead works associated with the old law. Those old law acts of sacrifice and ritual alone did not make them eternally pure. So in that sense, they were dead. And when the new covenant came, they would be completely irrelevant. God doesn't want people anymore to sacrifice animals. He sacrificed Jesus once for all so that we could leave behind these dead works of just killing an animal, that poor animal, day after day after day. We can take comfort in that we have freedom in conscience and in our spirits from the eternal consequences of dead works to serve the living God. We already talked about, here's a couple pictures of, of that lice soap I was talking about. 
They would use those ashes in sprinkling the unclean. And here's a picture of, of hyssop, that plant that they would use to uh, sprinkle with. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of the, a new covenant, a new will, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Again, redemption means paid for, and transgressions means our sins, what we've done to go against God. Under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, some people think that, that there's a limited calling. You know, God hasn't called everyone. And the reality is, in, in the New Testament, we see Jesus talking about using language like, hey, if you want to hear, hear it. If you, can, if you will change your heart, if you will have an open heart, you are called. You are called if you will accept God's will. So if you're wondering, am I one of those called people? Like where you are today. You're hearing it today. God is calling everyone who will hear him. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That those who are called may receive the promise of the, of the eternal inheritance. Maybe you're not familiar with what God's offered us. I don't have any pictures up here to show you God's eternal inheritance. I think we experience God's inher inter eternal inheritance in glimpses here. The moments that are pure and joyful and the moments that are designed by God to be reflections of the light that he wants to bring to us. The beauties of life are just mere glimpses into the eternal peace, satisfaction, joy, and life that we have in him. I don't have any pictures of that. And so if you hear that message, and you hear about an eternal inheritance, and you're like, what in the world? How is something be eternal? We don't know yet. We haven't seen it yet. But what we do know is that it is the greatest thing we could ever possibly imagine and more. And if we are trying to count the cost of being a Christian today, if you're one who's trying to decide whether I should be a Christian, because that's what the New Testament says, before you make a commitment like this, you need to count the cost and see what it's worth. Being a Christian involves not giving part of yourself. That's watered down. God wants you to give everything to him. And he will take care of us abundantly. If we are willing to do that, in my business classes in college, we, we call it return on investment. This is a no-brainer. If you, if you have an investment today that you see can prospectively give you 30% return on investment, you will run out of your shoes to go buy that investment. Because if you're making 30% of $10,000, you're making three grand a year on an investment. And that's good. We understand temporal investments, but do we understand how great our investment is here? How great our investment should be of our effort and our time and our life. But do we understand what we're giving God? Do we understand that we're giving God our whole lives to the point that he will give us an eternal life that is beyond any percentage return we could ever imagine? If we would ever be excited about making $200,000 in the stock market this year. We should know that we logically would drop all of that if it meant that we had to sacrifice for the return of heaven, the return of an, of an eternal inheritance that we cannot even fathom.
If you're one of those young people here today who doesn't know what inheritance is, it's what, some, it's what someone leaves behind for you when they're gone. Jesus has left an eternal, an eternal inheritance for us. For where, is, for where there is a testament or a will or a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So the person who writes that testament or the covenant, the, the parent in a situation where they're going to leave behind a will, they have to die before their will goes into effect. For a testament, a will, or a covenant is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was, de was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, so no Moses delivering the old law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. <clears throat> Verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Everything we've talked about this morning, Moses went through and sprinkled all that with blood. Everything had blood. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So here's a pic kind of picture of what it might look like with Moses sprinkling the book and all the people. And we have a parallel of Jesus pouring out his blood for the forgiveness. And what we're going to partake of today is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant that saves us. That's that part of the verse that says, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. This has been a theme that we just kind of need to understand about God's, the world that God runs. That even in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were separated from God, or uh, they were uh, impure before God because of their sin, he covered them with coats of fur. In the very beginning, before the old law was even set up, an animal had to die to be given fur to cover them for their sins. And then obviously in the Old Testament, like we've already talked about, the sacrifices, and in the New Testament, Jesus is that shedding of blood. Verse 23, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the copies, the lampstand, and, and, and the, the, the covenant, all these things that the, the Old Testament cleansed, all those copies should be purified with the blood of animals. But the heavenly things, the true heavenly things, need to be, need to be covered with a better sacrifice. And that better sacrifice is Jesus because he is number one perfect. Because he was, number two, voluntary. Because he was a rational sacrifice and because he was motivated by love. He is the perfect sacrifice. He wasn't something that was given against his will. It was all within his will. Verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. He hasn't come to some earthly set up tabernacle, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. It's not shocking to me that Jesus appears in the presence of God. He is great. We've established through this study that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is one with God. But it's fascinating to me that he's there to appear for us, to me. That Jesus is in the presence of God for us. 
Romans 8 verse 31 echoes this thought. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That eternal inheritance, he'll freely give it to us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and, there, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is there at the right hand of God, pleading on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He is interceding with God in the real heavenly places, not in some copy heavenly tabernacle set up with these dimensions, but in a heavenly place for on our behalf. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Jesus isn't going to sacrifice multiple times because he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That's not what happened though. But now, once at the end or the consummation, the, the buildup of all the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And is appointed, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Just like we're going to die once, and that's it. Just like that, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He's trying to get them to see that the system's very different. They're not going to have continual sacrifices. Jesus was so great, he was a one-time thing. To those, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So this, the fact that Jesus is going to come once, there are some religions in the world believe, that believe that we are reincarnated year after year, lifetime after lifetime. And it's all based on how you were in the previous life. And uh, some of those Eastern religions, if you're a good person, you'll take a step up. Maybe if you were a grasshopper this year, you'll be a squirrel. And it's, it sounds funny, but it's, it's really what they believe. You'll take a step up to then maybe being a gopher. And then maybe you're a rabbit and maybe a deer and then you're a person. If you're bad, you go down. Maybe you're a grasshopper next and then some kind of larvae. That's really what some people believe. You have multiple lifetimes and it never ends until you become... You become a, uh, a poor man, and then you, you become a rich man, and then you become a ruler, and then you reach nirvana, and you're and just part of the, the existence of the world. You're, you're part of the rocks and the trees. You're no longer a person or an animal. You are just part of the, the uh, world's consciousness. That sounds so stressful. I'm tired just thinking about that. can't imagine how some of you who are a little bit older, you're tired. You want to wake up as a squirrel and have to do it all over again? We, we have one shot. But Jesus gave his only shot for us. 
so that we can eagerly wait for him today. We can eagerly wait today. And it's almost sad to me that I think of it like a foregone conclusion. Jesus probably isn't going to come today, but he literally could come today. That's the worldview that we're told. He's going to come sometime, and people are going to not be expecting it. So I just want you to be ready all the time. That's how when you know somebody's devoted to you, as if they're waiting for you all the time when you're there. Jesus said, we're told that to those who eagerly wait, he's going to come back to us apart from sin. The first time, he was dealing with the whole sin problem. He had a lot of that on his shoulders, and that was his whole mission, to deal with this sin mess. But he's coming apart from that. He's not coming to deal with sin when he comes back. He's coming to get those who are his for salvation. And today, you can be one who eagerly waits. <coughs> Sorry, one more thing. I thought we were done. One more thing. This is the last slide. How in the world can eternal salvation be so eternal? You know, because how, how can one sacrifice for all time be enough for me to just enjoy, enjoy millions and millions of years, no end of all those good things in God's presence? The only answer that I can have this morning is that that's how great our sacrifice is. That's how great the payment is that Jesus bought for us. It's hard to fathom it because it paid for millions of years of peace in God's presence. And on the flip side of that, why is eternal suffering so eternal? Why can't it just be like maybe five days in, in punishment or whatever? Because that's, that's beyond me. Why is it eternal suffering that will be for those who do not want God in their lives? It's because divine justice is just that way. Because if we are not going to have Jesus cover our sins, we have to pay for it ourselves. And just like that sacrifice, we would have to be punished day after day and year after year because we can never pay for our sins. It is an, an unending problem. It's either an unending solution or an unending problem. If we try to fix it on our own, if we try to solve our own problems to the point that we think we're just good enough to get into heaven, we cannot pay for it on our own. And we cannot suffer enough in eternity to pay the price that was our sins undealt with. We, if we do not pay for that, or if Jesus is not paying for that, we have to do it eternally just like those animals who are sacrificed day after day, year after year. I can just imagine God pleading, you cannot carry this burden on your own here, and you cannot carry the burden of your sin in eternity. He's pleading with us today. He's pleading with mankind. You can't carry this. It's literally going to be your eternity because you'll never pay for it. But the good news is, Jesus did. No booster needed. No 10,000 year booster once we get to heaven. We need a booster for this vaccine probably to make it really what it should be for us. You don't need that with Jesus. He did it once. And he can continually cleanse you. So if you're not a part of that, if you're not waiting eagerly, earnestly for that eternal redemption, why not today? The Bible offers us a plan to join that. First, obviously, to understand something, we have to hear it. And we have to believe it. We have to repent, which just means, you know what? I was living the way I wanted to live. I want to live the way God wants me to live now. 
Because I believe in his plan, and I believe I'll have the best life because of it I could possibly imagine. We can repent of our lives, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We learn that no man can come to the Father but by Jesus. And so we must confess Jesus before men and be baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts 2.38, to contact Jesus' blood that cleanses us and makes us eternally whole and forgiven. If you've done that today and you've fallen away, we're here. That's why we have a church body, a church family, to get back on the right track together, to pray one for another. But uh, if you're in that position, if it's not a public thing, you can take care of it at your seat. But uh, today, don't put it off any longer. If you want to join God's family today, you can do that while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.